on his own road is John de Kinnis swinging the ball in for Randall Leal. He got the volley in and he scored. Right footed and into the left corner of the net. Stuber just stumbled. But Nashville are rocking. And Randall Leal has given them the lead with 10 minutes to half time. It's Nashville SC1, Austin SC0. Welcome to the Club and Country Podcast, the podcast of record for Nashville SC coverage from two people who've covered the club longer than anyone in their respective disciplines. I'm Nashville SC radio analyst Wes Bowling. And I am Tim Sullivan. I run clubcountryusa.com where I have been covering Nashville SC on the internet longer than anyone. It's the first time you've not used the title proprietor in your description. I know. I, 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 don't, right. I don't want to let the language get a little stale. Well, you know, it is proprietary information. If you will. <laughs> oh, Lord, we're already starting with the puns. The highlight you just heard was Randall Ayal's game winner against Austin FC in the 35th minute, courtesy of Tony Husband and ESPN 94.9. Moon Taxi, the jam, leading in as always, as the 440 Sports Network and the Club and Country podcast are all about local voices, local music, and of course, analysis of the local teams, such as. Nashville Soccer Club. Six matches, zero losses for Nashville SC. The boys in gold earned their second win of the season Sunday night against Austin FC. 1-0 was the final score. The winner, as we mentioned, courtesy of Randall Leal in the 35th. Nashville had chances to put the game away, but they'll happily settle for the narrow win, especially after Austin's would-be equalizer in the second half, Tim, was wiped away after a VAR check. Yeah, and I've been a, a little bit of a broken record in the past few weeks that the terms winless or undefeated really aren't that important in a world where you can kind of split the difference and be both at the same time because you draw a lot of games. But it's all about the point total, and, and when you see those three points go up on the scoreboard, it, it means a lot against the Verde. It's symbolically one of those nights, too, when everything comes together off the pitch as well. The largest crowd at Nissan Stadium since that opener against Atlanta. More than 22,000 fans announced a concert at halftime, tailgating back. Tim, it would have been awfully deflating for this club to leave with anything but the three points. Yeah, and they got exactly what they wanted to do. And Gary Smith mentioned after the contest that he was very happy to be able to please the crowd. Maybe he would have liked to please them with a couple more goals, but certainly he mentioned that you know, when you have that sort of fan support, you want to pay it off for them. You want to make those people feel like you are doing this for them, and that's exactly what Nashville did. Nashville, one of three remaining unbeatens in Major League Soccer. The other two, Orlando and Seattle, also earned results on the weekend. And next up, easily the toughest match so far this year for the fourth-place boys in gold, a trip to Mercedes-Benz Stadium to face fifth-place Atlanta, United has drawn with those two other unbeaten teams, Orlando and Seattle, this year. So today we'll get you ready for the Southern Showdown by talking to an extremely popular analyst and personality in American soccer, Jillian Sakovitz stops by. She's a sideline analyst on Atlanta's TV broadcast. She also hosts a superb podcast produced by MLS called The Call-Up, along with Susanna Collins. They do a great job digging into off-the-field stories, but also covering on-field action in MLS. And our chat with her sometimes that I don't think you're going to want to miss. But first, we'll take you to the early shout. Nashville SC's defense hits new levels of dominance. Plus, Nashville accomplished something nobody else in the East has pulled off this year. We'll tell you what that is. And then we'll get to the question everybody in Nashville SC circles is asking. Should the club purchase Yonder Cadiz or end his loan when it expires 
at the end of June. Time is running out to make that decision, and we'll give our analysis. Then we'll head to the mailbag. We got a glut of questions from you after Sunday night's contest. The biggest one that we'll address, how can Nashville SC become more clinical in front of goal? A one nothing win, pleasing, exciting for the club, but certainly could have been more. And We'll get into how to build on that performance and how to take advantage of these chances in front of goal as the boys in gold are still fourth in Major League Soccer in expected goals, but just 15th in goals scored. And then we'll go outside in. Roster decisions are being made for upcoming international competitions. How will that impact Nashville Soccer Club before closing out with the final whistle and our content recommendations and bold predictions for Nashville and Atlanta? Tim, you ready? Let's do it. Let's head to the early shout. Well, Nashville hanging on a little, but now they can break. It's slipped through for Don Bargy. Bargy outpaces them. He's into the penalty area. It's saved by Stuber's left leg, and it bounces down again, and then it's hooked away by the green shirts of Austin. There was the game for Nashville, and there was the moment for Bargy to put it away, but he couldn't finish. As heard on ESPN 94.9, that was Don Baji's near miss on a breakaway that would have made it 2-0 Nashville. Nonetheless, the boys in gold get the 1-0 win over Austin and rise to fourth place in the table. Here's what Gary Smith had to say after the match about the value of the win, but also perhaps a bit of frustration with a couple of those missed chances late. This was never going to be an easy game tonight. I certainly didn't look at it and think to myself that, that we should be rolling these over. I'm absolutely delighted that we've added the three points to the ball and we have excited a, a very big crowd tonight. And Gary, obviously the, the final score, getting a win, is, is the important part. But when you look at your teams um, finishing in front of net, do you kind of uh, almost groan and think it, it wouldn't be in a situation where we where a goal called offside is, is what we need to, to seal the win if we had been a little bit more clinical? <clears throat> Yeah, I, I, I agree. You know, when I get the chance to look back at the game, I'm sure I'm going to look at it and, uh, you know, on, on occasions cringe a little bit that we haven't been able to extend our lead. I'm delighted that we're making those chances. Of course, frustrated and disappointed that, that we're not making our life a little bit easier. But if you look at the fact that we've had 14 efforts at goal and six on target again, um, you know, in and amongst that, we've hit the post. Dom's had a one-on-one. All in all, it's been a very, very exciting game. Um, two teams that are desperate to try and get themselves on the sheet or extend their lead. And uh, it must have been a really good night for the fans that came and watched. So it's three big points against an ambitious expansion team that looked like it might nick a point after the goal that was eventually disallowed by VAR review. Tim, the biggest story certainly the win. The night was a huge net positive in front of an announced crowd of more than 22K. It's the fourth consecutive clean sheet, and Nashville now top four in the table, as high as they've been all year. So Nashville has a number of positives to celebrate, but still that match illustrated areas of progress the boys in gold still need to make. Yeah, the team once again generated buckets of chances. It's happened in four of six games, actually, with Miami and RSL, the only two contests where Nashville didn't really kind of pump out a number of chances so uh, they didn't have a ton to show for it in the end though and when you get the win that's the most important thing as you alluded to there Jared Stroud did put one in the back of the net it counted very briefly before VAR took it off off the board but you know if if Nashville had been up two goals three goals at that point it wouldn't have been quite as scary so that opportunity to get the three points that Nashville did ultimately get almost slipped away and that's something that you obviously do not want to have happen when you uh, are the better team on the day. 
And it's that old stat that's always the double-edged sword of expected goals. 2.4 of them for Nashville against Austin FC, the third highest in a match for Nashville this year. And so, once again, the fundamentals of the economy are strong, as they would say. The underlying metrics suggest that Nashville SC is creating chances, and they rank fourth in Major League Soccer in that category. And yet, again, they only tally once, and they come a couple feet away from Austin equalizing. So it was exactly the performance, Tim, that Nashville needed but perhaps unlike the New England win, it wasn't quite the performance Nashville wanted. And I think you'd agree, it's a tightrope. They just can't afford to walk against teams like Atlanta, who are not going to offer Nashville as many scoring chances. And, and Nashville's going to be forced to really have a higher percentage, a higher finishing percentage if they want to win games like the one at Mercedes-Benz. Now, I will say this, Nashville with seven goals is tied with Orlando in that category, another unbeaten team with seven goals in their six matches. So good company. And, and certainly when you have a defense as rock solid as Nashville's, it creates a little more margin for error on the other end. Yeah. And when you see the competition that Nashville has beaten, it may not be a bunch of world beaters. So they are going to have to be more precise when that strength of competition ramps up. And that happens as quickly as this weekend. Let's give you a trio of gold nuggets from Nashville SC's 1-0 win over Austin. And we'll start with Nashville's defense, which has gone from solid to great, to dominant. Its shutout streak grows to 407 minutes now, dating back to late in the first half against Montreal. That's a club record for minutes played without conceding. And since that goal by Montreal in the 42nd minute against the Boys in Gold, Nashville's only allowed eight shots on target in the last four and a half matches. That's one every 51 minutes. And opponents are just putting the ball on goal. Tim, 1.7 times per 90. Easily best in Major League Soccer. And in the match, Nashville had a streak snapped of 137 minutes without even conceding a shot on target. So the defense evolving to, I think at this point, easily the best in the league, at least if you're looking statistically. In your view, is the defense playing better than last year's unit, or are we seeing a small sample size? Yeah, I think you can say a little bit of each. I think they may be playing better than last year's unit, but it's because they're continuing where they left off last year. We forget that there were sketchy moments early in the 2020 season that kind of were papered over by the fact that the end of the year defense was so dominant you kind of see where things were going over the course of that season, ending up where they are now. And obviously there's not a whole lot of room to continue improving when you don't allow shots on goal, basically at all uh, one and a half, basically it's something that Nashville is going to continue doing if they want to keep this up. But obviously I think, you know, as you mentioned, a small sample size, really good teams are not going to fail to score they're not going to fail to even put the ball on target. And that's something that Nashville is going to have to um, maybe, they, you know, they'll clamp down the defense the way that they want to, but they're not going to be perfect all year. Uh, but it does feel nice while they are. Yeah, the boys in gold now have 13 shutouts dating back to the start of the 2020 season. That's tied for the most in MLS with Philadelphia Union, who, of course, won the Supporters' Shield last year. Of the teams that led MLS in clean sheets last season, seven of eight, made the playoffs, and Nashville leads MLS in that category, tied with Philadelphia, Orlando, and Seattle. But interestingly enough, even its attackers are getting into the act defensively. Nashville actually had a lower percentage of possession Sunday night against Austin than they had in any match this year, and Randall Ayal was a key cog defensively for the boys in gold. He led Nashville in takeaways with 14. Tim, that's a season high for him. 
Yeah, his defensive effort is often overlooked because of what he's able to do on the other end of the field. And I guess when you're compared to Alex Mwil, who doesn't have quite the offensive ability, but is a similar or better defensive player, you don't really notice what Leal does. But the way he's embraced this role, the way he's kind of said, if I'm going to play for Nashville SC, I need to play a Nashville SC style, essentially, is something that's got to bring a smile to Gary Smith's face. Last gold nugget in 10 tries, Nashville became the first Eastern Conference side to beat a team from the West this season. The East was 0-5-4 against the Western Conference until Nashville SC got the East off the schneid and gave it a little bit of confidence. Yeah, that means the average East team gains 0.7 points per game against the West, and Nashville is currently gaining 2.0 points per game against the West. I will not further contextualize that in ways that make it sound less impressive because <laughs> RSL and Austin are not exactly the world beaters of the West, but Nashville accounts for, for about half the points that the East has gotten so far this year against the West. Two good results, and now Nashville SC is done with the West. And A, a note of personal privilege here, too. It was a lot of fun to chat with Mike LaHood and Adrian Healy before the match. Welcome them into the press box. Got to interview Mike as part of the pregame show and chat with Adrian a bit. And I can tell you not only, I think, are Nashville folks impressed with what Austin is building, and Ian Ayer mentioned his media availability recently. He visited Austin Stadium as, mm-hmm. as it's getting ready to go on June 19th. But Austin folks are also really impressed with what they're seeing in Nashville. And I think, Tim, there's a sort of kinship and maybe a bit of a brotherhood between those two cities culturally that makes the soccer teams come together for, for a pretty unique little rivalry as well that I hope can flourish in, in subsequent years. Yeah, and I think the fact that they've come in within a year of each other as expansion teams and, and do share a lot of similarities, whether it's the Music City thing, whether it's the barbecue thing, uh, there are things that fans from Nashville appreciate about Austin and vice versa. And fortunately for the Austin fans, they got to experience it in Nashville over the weekend. Can't wait to take a trip down to Austin, have a buddy who's actually moving to San Antonio this week. And the invitation's already open that when Nashville plays Austin down there, we're going to have to make sure the broadcast team gets to travel to that one. That would be a, be a lot of fun. Next up for the boys in gold, Atlanta United. Atlanta fifth in the table right now, coming off a gutsy draw in Seattle. 1-1, Joseph Martinez equalized in the 86th minute, his second goal of the season, and it was via penalty kick. Atlanta has won two of three against Nashville in MLS play, all of them, of course, last year. The opener at Nissan Stadium in front of nearly 60,000 fans, 2-1, then a 2-0 victory at Mercedes-Benz Stadium. But the one I think most Nashville SC fans will remember on the pitch Certainly off the pitch, it's that opener. But on the pitch, the 4-2 win for the boys in gold when things had really fallen apart for Atlanta. They were without Frank DeBoer, the coach they had let go. Stephen Glass, the interim, was in charge. And it was a disheveled unit for Atlanta United. Nashville took full advantage, scoring early via Dombaji and uh, winning easily 4-2. If you want to take the way back machine, though, Nashville actually played Atlanta one other time at First Tennessee Park, the first ever appearance for the club in USL. Tim, you and I were sitting right next to each other for that, barely covered by the press box overhang, watching Atlanta beat Nashville 3-1 in a match that was way more exciting for, for what it represented than even what happened on the field. Yeah, a, a water-soaked uh, First Tennessee Park. I think most Nashville SC fans who have been around from the beginning will will tell you that it's not really a Nashville SC home game unless there is a little <laughs> bit of rain coming down. But for, yeah, fortunately, as you mentioned, we were barely covered by the overhang there. But again, that day was so much more important for what it represented than what the final score was. You would expect an MLS team to defeat a USL team regardless of the venue and the fact that it was a very good Atlanta team and what turned out to be a a pretty good USL Nashville SC team doesn't really obscure that it was about much more than what happened on the field. 
my favorite memory was the back pass toward Matt Pickens that just stopped in a pond ahead, yeah. in the baseball infield, and it was tapped home easily by Atlanta. Ended up being uh, the winner, I believe, ultimately. Uh, but yeah, it was a special day. And next up, we have a special guest who's going to talk a little bit more about the dynamics of this Nashville-Atlanta rivalry and get into the culture within the Atlanta locker room as well, which has undergone a couple of dramatic shifts, one for better, one for worse, as this team is now trending upward again. We are pleased to catch up with Jillian Sakovitz. If you want somebody who knows Atlanta well, but also knows this league extraordinarily well on and off the pitch, Jillian is the choice. We are pleased to chat with her. Here's our interview with Jillian Sakovitz. Well, Jillian Sakovitz is a host and sideline analyst for Atlanta United's television broadcasts, dating back to 2018. In addition to providing her expertise for ATL, she's also co-host of The Call-Up, a podcast for Major League Soccer that pulls back the curtain on the best stories in the league on and off the field. Make sure you give that a subscription as well as subscribing, of course, to Club and Country. Jillian, thank you so much for spending time with us today. Wes, Tim, thank you guys for having me. This is going to be fun. Well, let's talk first about this matchup coming up this weekend between two budding rivals in Nashville SC Mm -hmm. and Atlanta United, carrying the mantle right now for Southern Soccer. Interesting the change that we've seen in Atlanta. After such a robust start under Tom Martino, things really took a step back culturally. It seemed under Frank DeBoer, and yet now the old Atlanta that we know and some love, it certainly seems to be back under Gabriel Heinze. How has culture changed from FDB to Heinze? And any examples you can share to illustrate maybe the, the resurgence that, that may be happening in the ATL? Well, this is definitely a team on a mission this year. Um it's so easy. Like everything clicked so well in 2017. And then of course in 2018, when they won MLS cup that I think it just felt like there was no stopping this team. And while things may felt have felt a little bit different under Frank DeBoer in 2019, that was a year where they won Campeones cup us open cup. And in the course of a calendar year, they won three, three trophies. So 2019, while I think maybe fans saw a little bit of a different type of play, because people could argue in 2018, people started, teams started to figure out Atlanta United a little bit. You know, we saw Tata Martino change things in the playoffs to to get the wins. And then, you know, Frank DeBoer was brought in to, to continue that. And yes, Frank left after the MLS's back tournament. And then Stephen Glass came in and really did a good job with what he had to work with. And I know the team was really thankful to him. And now I think Gabriel Heinze is going to be Atlanta United 2.0, I guess, if we're still in, we're in 1.0. And uh, it's just a matter of clicking and getting past injuries, which injuries I feel like are a big thing for a lot of teams right now. Yeah, it seems like there's kind of a, you know, with the the nomenclature of 1.0, 2.0, 3.0, I, you could even consider this this <laughs> 3.0 or, or maybe a, a return to kind of the Tata thing. How did the team's morale kind of t- take a dip under DeBoer or did it? And then has Heinze brought it back to maybe where it was under Tata? So in terms of the, the team morale, I think one thing that you can see under Heinze that has been a little bit of a fun theme with him is that he is closed doors. It is him, it is his players, and it is his coaching staff. And that is it. You know, I, I think there was some media complaining that maybe they hadn't talked to him for like a month uh, during preseason. And that's so normal um, out, outside of, you know, American sports. 
Uh, but this is American sports and, and major league soccer needs to become relevant and exciting and a top four sport in the United States. So there's definitely a give and take, but I think Gabriel Heinz has become a bit of a, a man of mystery. And it's like, we get to know him by just watching his reactions on the field, whether it's the giant leap we saw uh, from him at home at the Benz against Chicago, or it's him talking to Santiago Sosa or him getting a yellow card or two. Like we are getting to know this really fun, fiery, passionate coach who by all accounts is a player's coach through him. So if you talk about culture, the culture is there. Um, The culture comes from the players and the coaching staff in terms of the locker room. That's always been very closed off. And that's really not something that we are super privy to. So you'd have to talk to Atlanta United player if you want to hear about the culture change. But from what I see every day is right now, the culture is great. And talking to the players, every single player tells me this guy's attention to detail is next level for me. One thing I always remember Jeff Lorenowitz saying under Tata Martino is I've never been so clear in my role. And Jeff Lorenowitz, even then, was the mo- one of the most veteran guys in the league and has been, you know, won multiple MLS Cups, played under I don't even know how many head coaches. And to hear a guy that was 35 years old say that, I always found really impressive. And I'm kind of getting those vibes right now from the Atlanta United players. And now it's just kind of about getting some guys healthy, like I said, like a Dom, like a Barco. And uh, getting everyone to click again, because there was no doubt a culture shift from Tata to Frank and now back to Heinze. You mentioned a couple guys there that we wanted to ask about. Obviously, Atlanta not, absolutely knocked out a couple of huge signings in the first couple of years. Joseph, Miguel Almiron, two of probably the best players over the past half decade in MLS. Guys like Jurgen Dom and like Ezekiel Barco haven't worked out yet. Is there confidence that they will, or is maybe the fact that they could end up being high profile misses in talent evaluation, a potential change to the way this organization is going to operate going forward? Well, I think the hard thing with Dom first and foremost, you can definitely group them in 2021, that they're guys with really high expectations that you expect to score goals, have assists, create in the attack, uh, finish in the attack. But Dom got here during the summer transfer window of last year. And from the front office point of view and from everyone's point of view, 2020 is kind of a season no one ever wants to revisit. It was a disappointment on all levels. And no one won't admit that from Darren Eels to Carlos Bocanegra to Brooks Lennon. No one doesn't admit 2020. So, I mean, Dom got here in the middle of 2020. Then he played in MLS during a pandemic season, uh, had a little bit of injuries. And and, and then he just got here and he got, and he's been injured uh, since the new England game about now we're going to look at like a month ago. So I don't know if we can really evaluate Dom and Barco in the same conversation, but as in terms of Ezekiel Barco, there's no doubt that Atlanta United has not seen the Barco that they thought they were signing up for at the time of record transfer fee in 2018 off the field issues in 2018, a youngster that wasn't performing. And, you know, I think when Barco got here was like 18 years old, you know, new language, new country, all the things that, that come, that come with that. And then 2019, under Frank DeBoer, we actually started to see the Barco that everyone thought Atlanta United had signed up for. And then he goes off to the U-20 World Cup, and then he kind of has a summer plagued with injuries, and then it's 2020, and now here he is again this year with, with injuries. So I'm really interested to see 
What is a not injured Ezekiel Barco under a big run of games, not away on international duty look like, but I don't know if and when we will see that. So it's totally fair to say that Barco has not been the signing that everyone thought, but Atlanta United has, to your point, made a lot of really good quality uh, signings. So I'm, I'm excited. I think that someone I would point to would be a Santiago Sosa of, yeah, like, this guy is everything, you know, what was the game we were watching uh, a way where he stops the ball with his face. And then he also scores a few minutes later. <laughs> this is like the type of player that, that Atlanta United wants like a gritty tough guy and he's young. So, you know, not every signing is, is going to be a Joseph Martinez or a Miguel Almiron, but I, I don't, I don't think the jury is out on a Zekiel Barco. And my argument for Dom would be, we haven't really gotten a chance to see him yet. Well, you mentioned grit and toughness, and nobody embodies those two traits along with grace and flair on the pitch than Joseph Martinez. <laughs> and you know, the, as, as wonderful as February 29th, ninth, twenty twenty was in Nashville, opening up, you know, Major League Soccer, sixty thousand fans, many of them coming up from Atlanta. The darkest part, of course, for everyone was seeing Joseph Martinez go down with that injury. And conversely, so great to see him back. Nine shots in his last three matches, a couple of goals, including the equalizing PK late in Seattle, a massive result for, for ATL early this season. Uh, question for you, in all of Major League Soccer, is there a more important player to his team than Joseph is to Atlanta? That's a great question, and no. I don't even think it comes close. There's <laughs> no one more important to their team than Joseph Martinez. And it's a good and it's a bad thing. It's a good thing because he is, you talk about the culture. He is, he is the culture. He is the man built him a statue. You know, look at what he's meant to Atlanta United. The guy comes from Torino for less than $5 million. Then in 2017, 19 goals, he follows that up with at the time of record season, 31 goals in 2018, 27 goals in 19. And then you mentioned, of course, that game, I was at that game, which credit to Nashville put on such a show for their home opener <laughs> uh, back in February of 2020, zero goals, obviously out with injury. And now this year, he's not at a hundred percent. And I don't think he will be for, for a little bit of time, but he just gets over the weekend. The, uh, the equalizer against Seattle, the only team, in major league soccer to get a point at seattle this year and seattle is a whole nother conversation in terms of what they can do with i mean their goalkeeper and everybody out and they still are just blowing everyone out of the water but no there's no one more important to their team than joseph martinez and the bad side would be of that of they have to become a team that is still a threat in the attack and has multiple weapons they cannot keep relying on joseph and joseph scored in fifth straight games under Frank DeBoer in 2019. Like that is absolutely insane. Unreal. You know, some people like talk about 2019, like it was almost like a disappointment. Like that is still crazy, but that cannot be it. We need Dom. We need Barco. We need Jake Mulvaney. We need these guys, Marcelino Moreno to get comfortable and, and to take some of that pressure off of Joseph because that's the Atlanta United that we knew and that the, the team wants of not how not is Joseph going to score, but how many goals is this team going to have? And yeah, Joseph might make up one or two of them. <laughs> <laughs> As we look to this weekend, 
um, kind of the, the various rivalry aspects of MLS are always a little bit up in the air. How do people in Atlanta view Nashville SC? I think from the Nashville end of things, it's kind of seen as a bit more of a friendly rivalry. Is that how Atlanta sees it? Do they not even see Nashville as a rival because there's the Orlando situation to take care of down there? Or kind of what is the view uh, from the ATL about how Nashville kind of fits into their picture? Friendly rivalry would be a, is a great word to use because when I think of Orlando, there is just such hate and animosity and just Orlando is such a, a joke to Atlanta United, like the Joseph just laughing at them, posting it online. And it's great. Now Orlando is going to be a team to beat for them. Nashville has for some reason become, or is like, who doesn't want to go to Nashville and who doesn't want to go to Orlando. When I was in Nashville for that February 29th, 2020 game, the bars were packed with Atlanta United fans and there were national fans and everyone was just ha- hanging out, having a good time. Maybe that's a Southern thing. Um, but then again, like why would it have not happened with Orlando so far? It's kind of, it's definitely a rivalry, but I would say it's a friendly rivalry between two really great cities. All right. So on the call up, you guys do such a good job deepening the conversation about soccer on the pitch off the pitch again folks highly recommend that you subscribe to the call up i want to borrow a device that you use on the call up you you use this device of you know are you here for something are you not here for something it's what the kids say these days i'm told (laughs) (laughs) you guys do a great job with that so i heard that device and say what elements of this nashville club are you here for and what maybe are you not here for totally here for the fans i have been loving watching the nashville fans before they even entered MLS and they had that fun year um, in USL. I'm so here for the Nashville fans. So welcoming, so nice. I remember running into some of them outside of Nissan Stadium again for that home opener in 2020. So here for the fans. I'm so here for Nissan Stadium too. I have to admit when I first heard that's where Nashville was going to be starting off their MLS play is you kind of thought New England vibes and I don't want to diss New England, but I don't love going to Gillette Stadium. It feels like the old MLS way of an empty, slightly cloudy. Speaking of (laughs) 1.0. Yes, yes. And that, and like I had been to Nashville prior and, you know, but the way that the fans make that place feel is it feels like it's their own. And that is 100% thanks to the fans. So I'm so here for Nissan Stadium and I am so here for this roster. Honestly, it's kind of like the best of both worlds. And I feel like it was like a sneaky good offseason for Nashville of just the pieces that they've put together and having those big DPs, having those guys that have been scoring for you. Also, PS, like still unbeaten. That's awesome. But then the names that being like an, now someone who's worked in MLS a long time, like the OGs, like a Dax McCarty, a Walker Zimmerman, a David Akam, and then Joe... Willis I cannot believe Joe Willis is still in this league and playing the way that he is when you guys have four four straight shutouts like it's just incredible I'm so here for this combination and in some many many ways it reminds me of what it was good for Atlanta United in 2018 of getting these guys from abroad getting these designated players but then surrounding the team with good leadership and people who know MLS Jeff Lerunowitz Michael Parkhurst, you know, and then I look at a Dax McCarty, a Zimmerman, a Willis, like Nashville built a good roster and I'm really here for it. 
And uh, I am here for your uh, your baby shower that you did for Walker Zimmerman uh, a few <laughs> few weeks ago. Now a couple months ago on the call up, it's great stuff. You guys have so many great conversations with key figures in the sport and do a tremendous job going beyond the pitch and talking about their mentalities, their outlooks on life, uh, and on certainly on soccer. I'm interested to know on that show, what's your favorite interview been? So I cannot nail down a favorite interview, but I will Tough. tell you this for Nashville fans. Our first ever guest, which was actually also a baby shower, which it sounds like we have a lot, but we really don't, <laughs> uh, was Dax McCarty. Well, had just uh, they had just had their baby, him and his great wife Jen of Callum McCarty, and he was our first ever guest in May 2019, and we threw him a virtual baby shower as well. So, um, I would say we have a couple moments which. I mean, having Peter Vermees on and him telling us that, like, you know, he thought about trying to get Zlatan to Kansas City way before Zlatan was even a thought for the L.A. Galaxy. It's those kind of moments that are really fun. Having a Becky G type on who, yes, might also be Sebastian Legette's girlfriend, but also is a part owner of NWSL side Angel City. And then having the more serious conversations of in the wake of George Floyd's murder, having Mason Toy and Ja'Cory Hayes on, who were both at the time playing for Minnesota. So they're two young black men living in Minnesota during this horrible, horrible time in our history. And then telling them, we're going to continue this conversation. We're going to check in with you. And and we have, we had them on during the off season. Sasha questioned having him on and how does a white man living in California explain what's going on in the world with Black Lives Matter to his kids? And him crying and really opening up to us and then having some really, you know, fun, fun moments of, you know, talking to Landon Donovan about what is gravy and his disdain for gravy around Thanksgiving. Like, it's just those conversations that we're having a lot of fun with. So I don't have a specific answer for you, but that's just kind of the gamut of it. From gravy team landed on that one. Gravy's disgusting. Mm. (laughs) Oh, come on. All right. We're we're going to have a conversation (laughs) offline about this, Tim. That's that's concerning. (laughs) What is gravy? It's really (laughs) such a valid question. Well, from from frivolous but sometimes divisive topics like gravy to much more important things like equality and social justice and everything in between, Jillian and Susanna covered on the call-up. And thank you for covering Atlanta United with us as well. Best of luck on the call this weekend and to Atlanta the rest of the season. And Jillian, thank you so much for spending some time with us today. Well, this is going to be such a good game this weekend because Nashville's coming in, I think, a lot hotter than they thought. And yeah, you guys, Atlanta United, you got a point from Seattle But if you want to continue that momentum, there's no excuse, I think, for Atlanta United to not win at home at Mercedes-Benz Stadium with 40,000 taking on their friendly rival in Nashville. So I think you got two teams playing playing for a lot. So it's going to be a really good one. And thank you guys for having me on and all that you do. Thank you so much. Special thanks to Jillian for catching up with us. And we've said it three times in the interview again, but the call-up is great content if you want to go a little deeper into the who and not just the what and the how of Major League Soccer. And I think Jillian, Tim, is maybe the most versatile MLS voice. She can talk tactics with the best of them, but she can also talk style and fashion and you know things that, that I'm not very good at, at getting into. Um, she blends that on-field analysis with lots of great off-field color. And we always love to get kind of the intel on the opponent's on-field characteristics when we bring on a local guest. But when it's a team like Atlanta, Nashville SC fans are pretty familiar with what they're going to get despite any sort of coaching change and and things like that. So it is really cool to kind of get, you know, boots on the ground information about the rest of the stuff, what, what kind of the vibe is like, what the, what the characters are like around Atlanta. So that's the sort of thing that we obviously cannot bring in as awesome of Jillian to kind of pull back the curtain for us on some of that stuff. Really appreciate her coming by. Now, when we put out a call for mailbag questions on Twitter, 
There were lots of great questions that came in, and we will get to that mailbag in just a little bit. But one in particular dominated discussion, and I think the replies are still probably going. I've not got the feed open right now, but Ben Wright raised it of Speedway Soccer, Broadway Sports Media, and, and many people responded back and forth with legitimate points on both sides. And the question is this. If you're Mike Jacobs, do you use the purchase option on Yonder Cadiz, or do you let his loan end? Before I pose that question to you, Tim, let's get a couple of facts out of the way, just so we're working from the same definitions as folks at home. So, John Arcadiz has two goals and one assist this season. He started four of six matches this year, and last year he came in late in the season, again on loan from Benfica, and in seven regular season appearances, he scored two goals. All those were off the bench. Then he started in all three playoff matches and did not contribute to a goal. In those games. So since he debuted for Nashville in Houston last year, Cadiz is just four shots shy of Randall Ayal in the same time span, but he struggled to find the target at times, and precision has been a challenge for him. 31% of his shots are on goal. Tim, that ranks 134th in MLS this season. By the way, Randall Ayal ranks first in that category. Cadiz's loan from Benfica expires at the end of June, so Nashville has four more matches to decide whether they will pull the trigger. So my question for you, should they? Well, firstly, if I'm Mike Jacobs, I'm very concerned about my Knicks in the first round of the playoffs. However, <laughs> I'm get, hey, getting the into Knicks the matter are in the playoffs. That's a victory right, right there. Getting into the matter at hand here. We obviously discussed this at length last week, and I don't want to speak for U.S., but I think we agree that Nashville's plan has basically been to execute that purchase agreement when the time comes. I don't think there's necessarily a decision that's yet to be made in that regard. But it is worth examining a couple of things that could potentially justify whether that is the right decision or not. And I think... Um, when you look at the monetary thing is, is what I really want to get into a little bit. A salary cutoff for a designated player is $612,000. If you make more than that, you are a designated player or you have to be bought down with target allocation money. Jander is a designated player. So we don't need, we don't need to split the hairs too much here. So he makes around $300,000 over that $612,000 cutoff. So that's the variable cost of, of signing him versus a different designated player. You have to pay a designated player $612,000 at least basically. Um, so what he's scoring at a rate of is um, in terms of uh, the underlying metrics is 0.56 expected goals plus assists over the last two seasons. Um, you know, obviously you mentioned only seven games last year, but he's outperforming his expected goals plus assists by, by a fairly healthy margin. I believe it was, it was almost 10%. So that's a pretty good amount. When you look at other players who are kind of in the same salary range, um, Adam Buxa from New England makes 33% more over that DP margin. He makes 400 grand over that over that threshold. He's hitting almost exactly the same advanced numbers, and he's significantly underperforming them. I don't think if you if you went to Foxborough, Massachusetts, you'd hear people saying, you know, we need to make sure we don't keep Adam Buxa. Um, Vancouver's Lucas Cavallini is 500,000 over the threshold, so 40% more additional um, liquid expenditure than Jean Dracati's, and he has worse creation numbers and is slightly under performing them too. Um, Maxi Uruti, a Brenner from FC Cincinnati. Once you get up to 1.4 million, which is uh, about 800 grand over that cutoff, you get to Jossie Zardes, who's a guy who's producing at a very high level and he's outperforming his expected goals numbers as well. That's a guy for whom the variable costs are more than double Cotties is. And a perfect system for him is that system that Columbus runs is essentially tailored for Jossie Zardes' strengths. He's only moderately outperforming Cotties. So 
overall, what I'm getting at here is his value per dollar, particularly when you assume that any designated player that you want to sign, any striker will be a designated player if Nashville replaces Cadiz with somebody else. Um, so, so numbers over that threshold, his value per dollar is exceptional right now. If Nashville's going to get more production from that position, somebody like Josie Altidore, who is five times more the variable cost, is somebody that is about what you would have to pay to almost sort of guarantee, quote unquote, more production than Cadiz. And I think that when you look at how Nashville has built this roster, at least at this point, we'll see what happens when they have a, a brand new stadium to sell a bunch of tickets at. But for now, I don't see them wanting to spend the money to guarantee more production than they're getting out of Shonder. I completely agree. So we're embracing consensus today. Yonder uh, Cadiz. Yeah, yet again, yet again. Uh, Yonder Cadiz is, I think, um, he fits the template very well of what Mike Jacobs wants to do, not just you know, financially with the resources that he has, but philosophically, you know, he, he talked to us about counting cards, the idea that, you know, when you go to a casino, you're not supposed to count cards, but if you do, you don't know what the next card's going to, going to turn over, but you have an idea of what it could because you've ruled out other variables that, that could hurt you. So I think Yonder Cadiz is, is similar. He is a somewhat known quantity at this point for Nashville SC, and they'll get a few more matches to evaluate if they choose to do so uh, before making uh, any sort of decision. And they've counted their cards with him, and they understand that the next match he turns over might not be his best. He's been somewhat inconsistent finishing. He has not always hit the target at the percentage that they would like him to. And yet, some of the underlying stats, you mentioned some, I'll give you a few others, actually point to a stronger performance than what I think some supporters are claiming via the eye test. Uh, and the one I want to look at is goal involvement per minute played. So ultimately, that's what he's paid to do, right? Contribute the occasional assist, but ultimately put the ball in the back of the net. Of course, he had the assist against Austin FC to run Leal. Since arriving in Nashville, Yonder Cadiz has participated in a goal every 124 minutes. Let's compare that to others on Nashville SC's roster. Rendell every 200 minutes. Hani Mukhtar, every 170 minutes. And a direct comparison to another striker on Nashville SC's team that often saw uh, sub-appearances. Daniel Rios, every 160 minutes did he contribute to a goal. Now, since Cadiz arrived in Nashville, the only player to exceed that rate is Randall Leal. I just gave you his stat of every 200 minutes since the start of 2020. But since Cadiz came in, Leal's gotten a little hotter, and he's been part of a goal every 120 minutes for Nashville SC. That's just four minutes better than Cadiz. So every four matches, Yonder Cadiz essentially is contributing three goals. I think that's a rate you can live with, especially if you have other options in a 4-4-2 or other players who are coming along. I think they certainly need Leal to stay hot. They need Mukhtar to improve his form. And, you know, we can talk about missed chances. That's part of the conversation. We can talk, too, about his tactical fit with the group. He hasn't always connected seamlessly, especially in that 4-2-3-1 scheme. Sometimes he can drift a bit far. He doesn't, you know, don't play through yonder quite as much as you're going to do maybe some other strikers in this group. There are, there are downsides. He's not a perfect player. But the value that he brings and the gold contributions that he brings, I think certainly would justify signing him to a deal and purchasing the loan option. Now, Gary Smith is pragmatic, and I think the most practical question we could ask is, is Yonder Cadiz contributing to on-field product? And the answer is yes. Is he contributing as much as Nashville AC fans would want? No. Has he missed some obvious chances? Yes, he has. That's going to happen in Major League Soccer, and, and I think it's happened more to Yonder than the Nashville SC fans would prefer, but the numbers still tell us he's adding value to this club in a way that is disproportionate to value for the money that many other clubs are, are having to pay for people at that position, as you mentioned. So... I do think Nashville can hedge its bets. I think maybe they should just consider extending him through 
the end of the year. I think that's the move. You minimize risk. You have a known quantity up top, especially in a year when striker depth is suffering more than Nashville would like. It's a deep position normally, but Daniel Rios, Abu Dhanladi have dealt with injury issues. Dombaji has a history of injuries, and we certainly hope he's able to stay healthy. But Yonder Cadiz offers a relatively low risk, and, and as you've said, high, high replacement cost. Honestly, Tim, it's a good discussion to have. I don't think it's a particularly hard decision. Yeah, and I think another thing that we didn't even mention here is that I think Benfica saw him as surplus to requirements. And after a global pandemic and with some of the things that are going on in Portugal's league, they may be motivated to sell him at a slightly lower price than they initially thought Nashville would be willing to pay. And I think that probably has played a role in why we don't know for sure whether or not that uh, purchase agreement is going to be agreed to. And it really depends on what Nashville is able to convince Benfica that they want to pay for him and what Benfica will let him go for. Jonner Cadiz, again, loan expires at the end of June. Nashville plays four matches between now and then, although I would wonder if they might want to make that decision sooner rather than later to have that answer before the international break. Mm -hmm. After all, Cadiz could potentially get called into the Venezuela team for Copa America, although it doesn't seem like that's probably the most likely scenario. We know that you may have different opinions. You may share our opinion. We'd love for you to interact with us on Twitter, at TN's West Bowling, at Club Country USA. Let us know what you think. Many of you have already done so on this issue, which is what led us to put this as our Embrace Consensus topic. All right, check that box. Consensus wholeheartedly embraced. Now let's move on to the mailbag for some other of your questions. Robbie Aces says, with the lack of clinical finishing becoming a chronic issue for the offense, how does it get fixed? Is it training, coaching, bring in new players? Is it just a confidence problem? Tim, your answer. Yeah, I know it feels like a, a chronic issue. And certainly the numbers say so far this year that Nashville has underachieved to date. But I think the numbers kind of separated from our emotions as we watch the games would probably say mostly that the sample size is a little too small, more than it being a chronic issue just yet. I put the guys who are underachieving their expected goals into a couple of buckets and there's some overlap here too, but there's guys with a really low sample size in terms of number of shots. It's Anibal Godoy, Alistair Johnson, Dan Lovitz, Dave Romney, Dax McCarty, Don Baji, Handwala Buana, Walker Zimmerman, a bunch of guys who haven't even hit double digit shots yet. When you look at specifically, I think Zimmerman and Romney, no individual header from a corner is going to have an XG value of greater than maybe 10%, but that's going to represent the majority of the shots that either of those guys ever ends up taking. And if they hit just one, all of a sudden they go from underachieving their expected goals to well overachieving their expected goals because the sample sizes are so small at this point. And then the second bucket is guys who are underachieving their numbers slightly, but didn't underachieve their numbers last year. And so you might expect a little bit of regression to the mean. That's Hani Mukhtar. Jean Cotty's well overachieved his expected goals last year. I know there, there have been some questions about whether he's a bad finisher, but at least last year, we didn't see that. Um, a couple of the guys who were in the previous category, Walker, Romney, Dax, are all kind of in that, in that range as well. So they were better finishers than the XG last year. So with all that said, it does still seem like it's a largely, but not exclusively, sample size related issue. I think the solution in both regards, and whether you're fixing the issue, so to speak, or just determining how big of an issue it actually is, is to continue racking up expected goals. Firstly, if you rack up a bunch of expected goals, even if you underachieve that number, you're still going to score a bunch of them. So that's mm -hmm. a net positive given um, Nashville's current status. And uh, when you increase the sample size, you, you should expect some regression towards the mean. Um, if you have a lot of expected goals and you regress towards the mean, you will have have a lot of goals again. A guy like Dom Baji may still undershoot his XG. He's had years in the past where he's been well above it, but he's also 
carried a little bit of a negative reputation in his more recent years before arriving in Nashville. There's upside simply by keeping the course. In your view, will Nashville regress to the mean and that XG will start to, and chances created will start to drop? Or do you think they will, I guess we could say, progress to the mean and goals eventually start matching up with those XG a little closer? I think they'll meet in the middle somewhere. I think the XG numbers cannot keep up when they play better competition. They will not have the same XG numbers against Atlanta that they had against Austin, for example. But I don't think it's likely that they undershoot their XG by the uh, degree to which they are so far this year. Good stuff. John Mueller asks, if you were going to build a perfect Gary Smith player using only one characteristic from each player, what would your player be? Oh, so I, I've blended a few of the key characteristics here. We could um, go along on this one. Yeah, That's a yeah, good I, question. I, I, honestly, in recruitment, I think Nashville SC does a very good job finding exactly what they're looking for in, in a lot of these characteristics, and it really helps. But I will take Dax McCarty or CJ Sapong's pure leadership ability because those guys are two incredible leaders for this team. Anibal Godoy's toughness and, and maybe physical strength to go along with that toughness as we see him uh, lay some tough tackles here and there. Hani Mukhtar's technical dribbles, Randall Leal's incredible shooting ability, plus his dead ball ability to, to kind of serve uh, longer passes. And then Walker Zimmerman's ability in the air. I almost gave him the, the leadership one as well. But uh, and then we'll wrap it up with Abu Danladi's speed. But Definitely not Abu Danladi's hamstrings because <laughs> the, the speed that he brings is is useless if he can't run because he's uh, sitting on the injury report too much. Yeah, if that player had Danladi's hamstrings, then Gary would have a very strained relationship, <laughs> if you will. And you won't, and I don't blame you. <laughs> it's a great question, John. I love that stuff. By the way, international break is coming up. It's the perfect time for you guys to ask those types of like evergreen questions, and we will give you your money's worth on them, and maybe a few terribly shameless puns to go along with it. Moving on to Sean White. How long can the unbeaten streak continue? The schedule's definitely looking like it's going to be much harder over the next couple of weeks. Yeah, I would like to preface this with, uh, with I'm on the record as saying the unbeaten uh, nomenclature is not necessarily all that important. I'm a non-truther in that regard. However, in terms of dropping points, dropping all three points, I could see it happen as early as this weekend. I don't want to scoop myself on my on my prediction to end the show, but a raucous Mercedes-Benz Stadium crowd and a healthy-ish Joseph Martinez, I would not assume a result in Atlanta. There are road matches that Nashville SC will jot down as still three-point matches, and certainly Nashville's never going to shy away from trying to take the victory. There are road matches where you're pretty happy if you take home one. Personally, I think Nashville would be really happy if it comes home from Atlanta mm -hmm. with one point, and a little context around that. First off, Nashville's yet to play a team this year that earned more points than they did in 2020. Of course, expansion Austin included in that as well. But this Atlanta team has won seven of their last eight home matches that were played in front of crowds at normal capacity. So I'm not counting those like five, 6,000 person crowds at Mercedes-Benz last year and that team that was a mess. In those eight home matches that I'm referring to, which dates back toward the end of 2019, they've scored multiple goals in six of those wins. And this is the one that's crazy to me. When they're playing at home in front of a normal capacity, they've been shut out one time. One time in their history, not just in that stretch. So there will be no shame in suffering a loss in Atlanta this weekend. But after that, Nashville placed four straight playoff teams from a year ago. So it doesn't really get any easier after that. And at some point, whether it's in that stretch or beyond, there will be no shame in, in dropping one of those. And I think Nashville can be pleased that it's insulated itself from that eventual blow by taking advantage of an early schedule that's loaded with home matches, loaded uh, with teams that it uh, surpassed last year. And then, of course, New England, very top of the table in the East, 
they win and play, I think, arguably their most complete match of the season. So a loss is going to happen at some point. Will it be Atlanta or later? We'll see. But they've done a good job putting themselves in a favorable spot if and when that does occur. Henry Lasser asks, what has Walker Zimmerman done to play his way off of the U.S. men's national team? Even when he's on the roster for the U.S. team, he never sees the pitch. Yeah, it's a group with a lot of competition, and I don't think there's really any shame in missing out. Obviously, from a personal perspective, he would love to be on the field playing, uh, wearing the red, white, and blue and representing his country. But the things that he provides to Nashville, which are the competitive spirit that I just mentioned, and that set-piece goal scoring, those are not necessarily things that the U.S. men's national team needs out of its center backs. In the end, it's not really a knock on him. And uh, in this particular instance, it ultimately helps Nashville by being less strenuous on him physically when he's uh, not at 100% health. Yeah, and he's not. At least he wasn't heading into Austin. He was listed on the injury report as being questionable with a slight knock. And so rest would certainly not be the worst thing in the world, even though he has proven he can compete. He's played 13 times for the U.S. He scored a couple goals in that stretch as well. And I would love to see him work his way back in. But I think it could be mutually beneficial for him and for Nashville SC to see him out of that roster for Nations League and, and Gold Cup and ultimately World Cup qualifying. Final question from Nashville SC radio play-by-play broadcaster John Freeman. He texted me and said, has anybody ever called Joe Willis Joe or Willis? It's always Joe Willis. He's one of those guys, Tim. He's just a two-name guy. Yeah, I I hadn't really thought about it until I heard you say it out loud, but it would be incredibly weird to hear someone just call him Willis. Right? Joe, Joe is like, okay, yeah, I could see that. But just hearing him called Willis would be just bizarre and no and so no it is just joe willis every time what is that is it a function of of just joe being kind of a staccato yeah short i think name it's, i think it's kind the of shortness easily? of the name is a big part of it of, of both first and last two others in major league soccer that i think are, are the same probably a lot more if you if you think about it but here in nashville sc gary smith when mm-hmm. have we called him gary and we never called him smith that's weird yeah he again he's he's not a smith for sure no he's, he's not a smith. he could be a gary but he's not a smith yeah, and to his face, we're not going to call him Gary Smith in our conversations. <laughs> but here on the podcast, for like third person, it's always, it's always Gary Smith. Yeah, I don't know. And then Johnny Russell for SKC, mm-hmm. another one that I don't know. Maybe it just flows so well. Johnny Russell. I don't know. <laughs> Interesting, John. Good question. And now um, I'm going to hold you accountable on our broadcast to one of these days calling him Willis. We'll see if it happens. And then I'll say, "What are you talking about, Willis?" No, no, no. All right, on that note, let's head outside in. And we referred to this just a couple minutes ago, but the U.S. announced its Nations League roster, and Walker Zimmerman did not make the cut. Center backs are John Brooks, Matt Miazga, Tim Ream, and Mark McKenzie. We mentioned that it's potentially a benefit for Walker and for Nashville SC that he's not on the roster, but ultimately, is it a surprise to you? Should it be viewed as a bit of a disappointment? Yeah, when last week's NSC injury report came out, I sort of felt that Walker's inclusion was a hint that things might have been headed in this direction, whether that's because he is suffering an ankle injury that he needs to rest or be maybe a slight message from Nashville SC to the U.S. men's national team and say, hey, you know, he's, we don't really need him to go out on international duty right now. It might be personally disappointing for Walker to not be able to represent his country, but getting some rest, both in the soccer sense and with a baby on the way in short order here, he's going to need it. I've, you and I both know that. <laughs> it, could be, it could be for the best that he gets a little bit of, of time to put his feet up a little bit. Who else should we expect to see, Tim, called away for Nations League, Gold Cup, Copa America, World Cup qualifying? Who, who are you looking at as the primary guys who are going to be in the mix and therefore guys that Nashville is going to have to think about replacing, at least for Copa America, 
and for Gold Cup, which conflict with the MLS season. By the time people listen to this podcast, it might be out. I'm kind of surprised that we haven't heard word from Costa Rica uh, for the Nations League, whether or not Randall Leal will be called up. I would assume he'll be he'll be participating in the semifinals with Costa Rica for the Nations League. So that's something to keep an eye on. And then, um, you know, looking forward to the Gold Cup, especially. Anibal Godoy hit his 100th cap for Panama pretty recently. I think he'll get called in. I don't know that they need him as much. He, as, as we know from a Nashville SC perspective, he's getting up there in years and kind of overtaxing the body might not be something that he wants to do, might not be something that Nashville wants Panama to do and might not be the best for Panama as they need to turn to a new generation. I think Alistair Johnson stands a really good chance to be called in for Canada, impressed in a big way during uh, the World Cup qualifying shortly before the beginning of the MLS season. And that's something that has him in the picture for John Herbin's team going forward. Um, John Ducati's, as we talked about a little bit previously, I don't think he'll likely get called in for Copa for Venezuela, but stranger things have happened. And obviously, you know, as we talk about whether Nashville SC is going to sign him on a permanent deal, not having him available for these, for these next four games before that uh, purchase clause needs to be triggered. It's going to be a weird situation. And I think, you know, from a professional perspective for Jander, it doesn't really make a ton of sense to be away from the team. That's kind of making that final decision. Let's paint a picture for everybody of what Nashville SC and other MLS clubs are up against. So international break covers CONCACAF World Cup qualifying, the next phase of that from June 2nd through 8th, which involves the smaller countries and and Canada and Panama as part of that. Nations League also covered by this break. So Nashville won't have to give anybody up that would you know otherwise be playing in matches. June 3rd and 6th, just a couple of match dates there as U.S. and Costa Rica are still involved. Then Copa America and Gold Cup are, are the bigger disruptors. June 12th through July 12th is Copa America. Again, for Nashville SC, maybe that involves John Cadiz, maybe not. If not, then Nashville is going to be spared from that. And then Gold Cup, July 10th to August 1st. That's all North American teams. And, and that's a situation where Nashville could be down several players. And, and then they just have to hope that other clubs are in the same boat. It's worth noting that group play for Gold Cup is is where you'll see the, the bigger absences. Obviously, if if an American gets called up, Walker Zimmerman would almost certainly be making it through the group stage and into the knockout rounds of the Gold Cup. That's not a guarantee for Randall Leal in Costa Rica should he get called up to the Gold Cup. So it's something to keep an eye on. You know, it's not from the beginning to the end for every nation in the Gold Cup. Well, let's blow the final whistle now. Tim, what content have you been taking in lately? You know what? I am going to do a little shameless self-promotion. Oh, this week, do it. Largely because I couldn't think of anything else that I wanted to <laughs> shout out. I've shouted out most of my favorites over the past few weeks. But head to clubcountryusa.com. I think I'm inspired by the Jean Ducati's conversation that we've had to kind of dig in a little bit into how the values of some of these things line up with what Nashville's return is on, on a player like Jean Ducati's. I might write something about that this week. I have yet to have the opportunity to even dig into the MLS uh, salary release yet, which is something that anybody who knows me knows that's the sort of stuff that I live for in this world. So I'm really excited to have a chance to do that. If I um, manage to get it, get to it this week, I might just hold off until the international break, which we were just discussing. Uh, we'll see Nashville not play for a couple of weeks. All right. My recommendation is going to be a bit shameless as well, because she just appeared on our show. We've already referred to it a couple of times today, but the call up is really a fantastic podcast. So MLS has a couple of, of podcasts that they put out. One is extra time and one is the call up. And she extra time is exactly how I find out what's going on in the MLS. That's why he's here. <laughs> 
we may listen to that twice a week. And it's funny. I actually listen to it on 1.25 speed, that and the call up both. So hearing Jillian talk to us, like, man, she's really talking slow today. Oh, no, wait. <laughs> she's talking normally, and I had her fast. So extra time is very much about on-field storylines with, with some compelling off-field interviews. The call up is both, and, and they get into the culture of the league. And because of the diversity of MLS, because of the diversity of storylines across this league, that leads to some incredible conversations. Most recently, D.C. United President of Business Operations, Danita Johnson, hopped on a female leader of of a major league soccer club who came from the basketball world and explained how some things translate and some things that she's already fallen in love with about soccer. Her leadership philosophy uh, is really a deep conversation with her. It really is a a great place to go to understand the league, understand what makes these players tick, which ultimately plays, of course, a much bigger role in results than uh, than we often give it credit for. So the call-up is is just a great outlet to to listen. They uh, come out with new episodes every Tuesday, so Right after you listen to us, go check them out. Subscribe to them as well. All right, Tim, bold predictions for Atlanta. Yeah, I don't I don't think it's going to go well in Mercedes-Benz Stadium on Saturday afternoon. I, I look for the first Nashville SC loss of the year, unless there's one condition upon which I can see Nashville uh, earning a result. And okay. it's something that you've mentioned is, is extremely rare in Mercedes-Benz Stadium for Atlanta anyway, and that's holding the five stripes without a goal. I don't see Nashville earning a 2 nothing win or something like that. I think a 0-0 draw is probably your best bet for finding a result. Even a dominant defense could easily concede 2 or 3 to Atlanta, and, and there'd be no shame in that. You'd have to be historically elite, I think, to expect a scoreless defensive result. And Nashville will certainly certainly aim to shut Atlanta down and take advantage of its own chances. But I think my prediction, I'll be on the call on ESPN 94.9, so I won't give a score pick. I do think Atlanta will have 65% possession in this match. And that would be the most for any opponent for Nashville SC this year. Austin had approaching 60% against Nashville SC as they were chasing the game and and naturally just had the ball more in the second half. Um, I think the only way this fails to happen is if Nashville is behind early and then Nashville might end up with more of the balls or trying to to fight back. But I think Nashville is going to be too tough to break down for that to happen right away. I think Atlanta will knock on the door for a while. We'll see if they score. We'll see if Nashville can take a chance, advantage of chances on the counter. I don't think this is a game, though, where Nashville's going to sit back and just pray for a scoreless draw. I think they have ambitions of their own. I think they will see favorable matchups that they can attack, and, and they're going to they're gonna go for it. I think they'd be foolish not to, to take some shots at it. But I think if this match is even after 45 minutes, uh, Nashville could very logically sit back and say, hey, a point would be a really good result here in Atlanta. My secondary prediction will be tied to that, which is I think it'll be the first match all season that Nashville will get outshot. I think Atlanta will have more chances, but again, especially on that surface in a wild environment where, you know, even opponents can thrive if they see it the right way as, Hey, this is atmosphere. This is adrenaline. I do think there's a chance Nashville could capitalize and find itself on the winning end. That's going to be a very tall order for sure. Yeah, I think one thing that we can safely predict is that you won't see Nashville press as hard as they did in the first half against Austin because when you're playing a team with Joseph Martinez, that is just begging to have him score a hat trick on you. Oh, yeah, those Tato Martino teams were built on counterattacks and on just absolutely butchering you if you get too far forward. I don't think Nashville will make that mistake, at least in the early going. Well, Tim, thanks. This was great. One of my favorites so far, I think. Great discussion also with Jillian Sakovitz, and we want the discussion to continue with you. So feel free to rate, review, subscribe, tell a friend, retweet this podcast, give us each a follow at Club Country USA. That's Tim. I'm at TN's 
West Bowling. Thanks to Moon Taxi for the music. Thanks to ESP and 94.9 for the highlights. Thanks to 440 Sports Network for providing the platform for us to talk about the beautiful game. For Tim, I'm Wes. So long. <laughs>